0: Matthew 16 verses 1 through 12 and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven he answered them when it is evening you say it will be fair weather weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil, evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread, but Jesus is aware of this. Said, Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees.
1: This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the privilege of getting together publicly around your word, united by you, Christ. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who has spoken to us and guides us. Lord, thank you for the gift of our voices, which we can lift together in praise. And thank you so much for these kids that you've blessed us with. Be with our time now and guard us from distraction. Um, Help us to be attentive to your word. Help us to hear your voice this morning. Be with me as I speak. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat and good morning. If I were to ask what makes a good and healthy relationship, I think most of us in here would say love and trust and mutual respect. And I'm betting that few of us would say admonishment, right? What even does that word mean? To admonish someone is to give someone a warning. Um, Not really a wonder that admonishment isn't like a hallmark section in the cards at at Target. About a week ago, me and my three oldest boys um, were playing basketball in our driveway. And so I, I I pulled the cars back to make a little room. And I looked each of them in the eye and I said... If the ball goes into the street, you don't get it. You come to daddy and let daddy get it. A car could hit you. Don't go into the street. And with two of the three that I was playing with, this was about a 90-second process of me telling them what to do, having them repeat it back to me. But with one of the three, this was about a seven-minute process. And that, that one is my daydreamer, Shepard. Shepard has an impressive talent of being somewhere else in his mind. He uh, he likes to be on the moon. In body, he is here somewhere else. He is he's somewhere else entirely. And as I tried that afternoon to get on his level and look him in the eyes and convey to him what I was trying to tell him, every time I would open my mouth, the eyes would glaze over and back he went to the moon. And then I would say Shepherd, you know, and he'd come back, and we went back and forth like this for about five minutes. I do this because I I love my sons. I don't want them to get hurt. So I warn them of the present dangers that exist around them. Warning or cautioning or admonishing, as the Bible refers to this, is vital to relationships. It's vital to our discipleship in the church. If we are taking discipleship seriously, then we are warning one another of the dangers present in each other's lives. Paul instructs us in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And again in his letter to the Thessalonians, admonish the idle, warn them, encourage the faint-hearted. Today we see our Lord exemplify this as he gives a warning to his disciples. The religious leadership of this day was dangerous. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not good guys who just were a little misguided. They were snakes. John the Baptist refers to them as a brood of vipers. Jesus calls them blind guides, whitewashed tombs that appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inward are dead and unclean. Jesus even goes as far as to call these men children of hell. In Matthew 23, he says, for you travel, talking to the Pharisees, across sea and land to make a single proselyte, but when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These men had influence, they had authority, and they were evil, and they were dangerous. And like these teachers, I hope all of us recognize that there are spiritually dangerous people today people of influence, people with great reach in our digital age, whether on a YouTube channel or a Twitter feed, on your television or knocking on your door, spiritually dangerous people exist today. They pose as shepherds, shepherds, they pose as prophets when in fact they are wolves and waterless clouds. They are false teachers and they deceive thousands. Jesus wants us to beware of false teaching. I'm just going to say that on the outset. That is the center of this text. Unfortunately, broods of vipers are still around today, but our God loves his children and is swift to warn us of the present dangers that exist around us. So before we hear Jesus' warning, let's first observe these enemies of Christ. Go with me to to verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came... And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. As we continue as a church to move through Matthew, these uh, interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders, really, will only grow in frequency and intensity. It's only going to get worse from here. Look just one chapter back, and you see that the Pharisees have not been gone for long. They are increasingly concerned about Jesus, and now they're joining forces with the Sadducees uh, against him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two groups making up the Jewish leadership of this day. By all accounts, they were bitter opponents. Theologically and politically, these two groups were oil and water, but hatred for God makes for strange friendships. The Pharisees were separatists. They were utterly devoted to the law, and they believed in a coming resurrection. While the Sadducees were far more aristocratic, they did not believe in a resurrection, and they acted more like politicians, just collaborating with whatever government was in the power at the time. Though they disagreed sharply, here we find them in allegiance against Christ. They have found their common ground in their hatred of Christ and their hatred of the truth. They come to Jesus and they just ask him for a sign from heaven, as if one more sign that they haven't yet seen is all they need to be convinced, as if they were willing to be convinced at all. Never mind John's proclamation of Jesus before them. Never mind Nicodemus in John's gospel, who actually comes to Jesus by night and admits that they know that he is, a, he is from God, because nobody could do these works apart from God. Never mind Jesus' teaching in the sermon which left them astonished. Never mind the 4,000 and the 5,000 men fed, not including the women and children with just a few small loaves and a fish. And never mind the lame, the blind, crippled, mute, and many others who were all healed by Jesus. It is abundantly clear that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were quite unwilling to admit who Jesus really is, regardless of the heap of signs that he has already provided them. It is abundantly clear, oh, I'm sorry, they are more willing, in fact, to say that his power comes from Satan, if you remember, than God himself. Turn over to Matthew 12 with me real quick. Matthew 12, 22. Matthew 12, 22. And keep your finger on this chapter because we're going to come back in a moment. Matthew 12, 22 He says, Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him. And Jesus, he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This here is the kind of hardened heart Towards God which hides behind demands for more evidence. It is unbelief looking for justification. A person like these men can never be convinced. They come to Jesus and they ask for a sign when in truth, they don't want to be shown anything. They are there to accuse Jesus. They are there to entrap Jesus. And look at Jesus' response in verse five, back in Matthew 16. Jesus says, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them. And departed. Jesus is very to the point with this group, and he reveals their spiritual dullness. They are likely, what they're doing, is asking for some kind of divine sign from heaven, kind of akin to what God gave Moses and Pharaoh, or Moses for Pharaoh. The irony is, here is that these men were just like Pharaoh in their hearts. Though they were religious leaders of the time, they were stubborn and prideful and hardened against God. Jesus points out that they can interpret the natural signs of the heavens, but they can't even see, and they are blind to the, signs, the spiritual signs given from heaven. Jesus will not cater to these evil and unfaithful men in their request. He calls them what they are, but he does promise them one sign, the sign of Jonah. And if we remember again, this is the second time that Jesus has promised the Pharisees this sign of Jonah. The first time was back in chapter 12. In 1238, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And here's what that is as explained by Jesus. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, Jesus is saying that the sign he is going to give them is his resurrection. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up, he said, about his own body. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it should have secured their faith. But if it didn't, then it sealed their condemnation. In fact, that is also true for us and everybody. To believe that Jesus was raised from the dead is to secure faith. But to deny his resurrection is to seal condemnation. Do you see now are you starting to see why these teachers, this type of teacher, is so dangerous? See, they deceive real people. Um, false teaching is never isolated. It's never um, inconsequential. It's never just somebody theorizing to people with little consequence. False teaching, in false teaching, real people, real people are deceived and real people are hurt and the, and the stakes are eternal here. And Jesus rebukes these spiritual teachers, quote-unquote, for their refusal to recognize the signs right in front of them, and he lays them exposed as they are, evil and adulterous towards God. And then he leaves them. And now we turn to the next part of the text, Text, a warning from Jesus to his own disciples. Go with me to verse 5 from chapter 16. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Mark's telling, the gospel of Mark, his telling of the story, excuse me, informs us that they actually had one loaf of bread with them. So the disciples are in a bit of a panic. They've got at least 13 people in this boat. They get to the other side, and they are concerned that they have failed to bring what was necessary for their trip. And they are so concerned that they actually miss what Jesus is telling them, which is far more important. They completely miss the point when Jesus offers his warning using the illustration of leaven. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they think, what leaven? We don't have any leaven. We don't have any bread. In our Wednesday morning study, it came up several times how ridiculous this was of the disciples to be concerned about bread with Jesus in the boat, with Jesus among them. They are so consumed with physical needs that they completely miss Jesus' warning about far more important spiritual needs. Even though Jesus has just demonstrated his ability to feed thousands of people with next to nothing, they saw that with their eyes. But before we are too hard on the disciples, are we not like this at times? Are we not? How quickly do we forget the provision of God? How often are we blinded by our anxiety about finances or work or school or food or clothing? We're so blinded by these things that we actually forget God's perfect provision and we miss his presence with us. We are like these disciples. Jesus, in his grace, in his compassion, in his patience, just clarifies. He clarifies what he means. He does not leave us alone in our ignorance, but he speaks, and he corrects with what is true, despite our concerns, despite our forgetfulness, and despite our little faith. Look at verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of what they were thinking, aware of their concerns, he said, "'Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread?' "'Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees.' And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees." I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't call attention to the fact that they forgot to bring bread. That's not what he's correcting here. He doesn't berate them over their mistake. That's not the important part. Jesus, oh, he calls his attention, their attention to himself. He is drawing their attention to who he is. This is the center of their faith. Jesus is the one who made bread, and not like the way that we make bread, not the way that like my wife makes bread, but he made the molecules that make up the bread, right? This is who Jesus is. He created you and your taste buds and your stomachs and your need for bread. He created our marriages and our children and our jobs and our homes. I cannot help while I'm reading this and seeing the concern of the disciples, but think back to Jesus' words in Matthew 6. In fact, we just read a children's story that covered this. Jesus there says, To his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Wherefore, therefore, I mean, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Church, we, like the disciples, can become so preoccupied and so anxious about provision that we forget that we are children of the one who always perfectly provides. Jesus patiently reminds them and us that who he is, Messiah, Savior, King, God. And it's then that they realize with clarity that his warning is not about bread, but it's about something far more threatening, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what is this teaching? You know, that kind of becomes the question of this text. How do we articulate it so that we may watch for it and take Jesus' warning seriously? Simply put, the leaven Jesus warns of is false teaching, which leads to unbelief. Fundamentally, these serpents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus contended with here, are lying about God. That's the fundamental thing that they're doing. And they're doing it just like their father, the great serpent, all the way back in the garden did to Eve when he said, did God really say? People have lied about God since Satan first did in the garden. And these falsehoods, this kind of teaching displayed by these men is not confined merely to the realm of theology and religion, right? Lies about God and assumptions, wrong assumptions about God are everywhere, From our subtle TV commercials, promising transcending joy if you buy a car, which is absurd, to the blatant denial of God in conversations around sexuality and gender today, we are living in a time where we are relentlessly bombarded with false teaching. And if we are not aware and we are not on guard, it will work in us like bad leaven dulling our hearts, leading us to unbelief. Bad teaching is like radiation poisoning, all right? It takes a little bit over a long course of time, years of just a little bit, and it leads to cancer. And by unbelief, when I say dulling our hearts and leading us to unbelief, I mean those quiet lies and whispers that come from your heart. You have a bad day at work, you get in a fight with your spouse, and out of the heart comes, if God really loved me, this would not happen. That's unbelief. You're alone, at home, or somewhere, and that website beckons you, and you think, just one more time won't hurt. That's unbelief. There's no way that God can fix my marriage. There's no way that God can save my parents. I have no purpose in life. God doesn't really care about me. All unbelief. Christians experience this. Ask anyone in here who has been a Christian for some time, and they'll tell you. We have a host of examples in the Bible of people struggling, fighting against, wrestling with unbelief, lies about God. Jesus' warning to his disciples is a warning for us. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of false teaching, lies about God so a couple of points of application and then we'll conclude number one the only weapon that we really have against lies is truth that's it this is actually how Jesus triumphed over Satan himself in the garden he quoted Deuteronomy three times I mean Jesus had all the power to call down a host of angels he could have rebuked him into another galaxy but he quotes scripture Deuteronomy three times We are sorely mistaken if we think we have a fighting chance against the lies of Satan if we do not know the word. We have to know what is true to recognize what is false. Jesus wants us to be aware of false doctrines, so we have to know true doctrine. It's the way that this works. It's like light driving out darkness. You have to have light. So men, be men of the word, and women, be women of the word. Parents in this room, let's be parents of the word. Let's raise our kids up in the word. This is the only way we can fight lies. Number two, just like the disciples, we will lose sight of Jesus. Christians, all, will face spiritually dull times and seasons. And if that's you right now this morning and there very well may be people in here facing a similar season, then there's no better time for you to come back to Jesus than right now right now. You don't have to dress yourself up. You don't have to fix anything. Jesus will not be standing there with folded arms, tapping his toe. He is there with open arms like the father of the prodigal son, and he wants you back. There is grace untold. He is bigger than anything you are facing and sweeter than any treasure or lie of this world. He is actually what your heart is longing for. Final point, This fight against lies does not happen on an individual basis, but a communal basis. God has given us the church. You have a group of people lying in this story, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You have a group of people being warned about the lies. And every one another in commandment of the New Testament assumes community. We're not supposed to go at this alone. If you are isolated, you will be more susceptible to the lies that Satan is dealing out 168 hours a week. So if you don't have community, there's plenty of places around here to find it. Jesus is so sweet to us and so patient with us in our, in our dullness, like what we see here with the disciples. And I'm pretty wowed by Jesus' patient with both, both with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and with the disciples, that he rebukes one and gently corrects the other, and we need it. Warnings and admonishment are vital are vital to discipleship, they're vital to the the Christian life, and they're vital to our our well-being as Christians. Let's pray. Father, you have warned us, and there are many more warnings in the Bible. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, you would help us, Lord, to, to realize your grace, to realize that this isn't about us nailing it. This isn't about us doing this perfectly week in and week out. Lord, this is about your grace and your love and your kindness, which know no bounds and no mercy. And I pray that you would help us in this room to feel, to feel your love, to feel affection for you. And Lord, deliver us from temptation and lead us not lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. As we prayed earlier, as we recited earlier, we need your help to do this work. We need your help to heed your own words. So by your spirit, strengthen us by your word correct us and lead us, Lord. Oh, thank you for your church, for the privilege of getting involved in a community united around you. Thank you that we don't have to go at this alone. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.